This episode of The Ride is brought to you by Farnham. and welcome back to another episode of the ride this is nicole and this is michaela um and this week we are sitting down and we are talking with ryan brushing who uh some of you guys might be familiar with he is an nrha professional uh he is going to be coming out with a video series up on demand uh he's been in the the spring issue of the magazine so we're super excited to kind of introduce you guys to ryan and get a a better feel for who he is and his background. And he was actually at the NRBC during this interview. So um, he was at a horse show and still found time to sit down and talk to us, which was so nice of him to do. Yeah, it was a really great conversation. And I learned a lot about Ryan. I mean, I knew, you know, some of his start, but I did not know the whole story of his riding experience, but it's very interesting how he gained all of his experience and, his horse life in general, because he didn't start out riding horses. He wasn't in a horse family. So kind of gives some inspiration to those people who maybe feel like horses are impossible and that there, there is a way and they can get into it. I think that's one thing I really love about learning all of these horse trainers uh, backgrounds is it's always really fascinating to hear of the people who grew up in urban environments and, you know, didn't come from horse families and, and had to find their way into the horse industry themselves. And, and, you know, now they have made a name for themselves in the industry as a professional. And it's, it's just always really cool to hear about the different, um, you know, stories and how we all ended up doing the things that we love to do. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, it's just, we've talked to so many trainers where they've come from urban backgrounds and have dove headfirst into horses and learning about all of these people and and not just the horse trainers but the people in general who just have really cool horse stories and so with that I want to mention that if you guys have anybody that you can think of that has a really really cool horse story and we should get their story out to you guys and learn more about them because we love talking to the horse trainers but we also love talking to people like you who are truly living their best western horse life so if you have anybody that you can think of like that be sure to send us an email at horseandrider at equinenetwork.com as Michaela mentioned we do have a new email address so be sure to email us at horseandrider at equinenetwork.com instead of our old email so that we are for sure able to get your uh, request. But yeah, like Michaela said, we love anybody who has a really fascinating story. And uh, if you're a listener of this podcast, you know, we've had people on who have, you know, gotten involved with uh, nonprofits, whether it's, uh, you know, a therapeutic riding center, working with veterans, working with Mustangs even. um, And then, We've had non-pros that have come back after getting really sick and being in the hospital and, and going on to win, you know, world championship titles. So we love hearing from people who have a really great story to tell um, and that are living their best Western horse life. 
Absolutely. Well, I think from here, we'll go ahead and dive on into this super fun interview with Ryan. Admit it, bugs suck. They're the last thing you want hanging around your horse and stable. Our friends at Farnham can help rid your barn of these annoying, filthy, disease-carrying bad guys. If you're ready for the best way to protect your horse, your stable, and yourself, look to Farnham's no-fly zone solution. The people at Farnham have discovered the best way to set yourself up for success is by fighting on all fronts. With their three-stage approach of block, repel, and reduce, you can be sure flies, mosquitoes, and ticks are kept away. Go to Farnam.com, that's F-A-R-N-A-M.com to learn more and to download a free copy of the Horse Owner's Guide to Creating Your Own No-Fly Zone. Plus, you can find money-saving offers to help get you on your way to a fly-free zone. Farnam, your partner in fly control. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Ride. Today, we are here with Ryan Rushing, who is an NRHA professional horseman and also somebody who you've seen in the magazine and you're going to see on Horse and Rider On Demand. So we thought we would kind of introduce you to Ryan now that you'll be seeing more of him throughout our brand. So thank you so much, Ryan, for coming and and doing this podcast while you're at the NRBC sitting at your stalls. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, we appreciate you, uh, you know, doing this while you're, you know, in between trying to get horses ready to show. And it sounds like it is a little warmer in Texas than it is here in Colorado. So you made the right decision. It is. I'm toasty in a light sweatshirt, (laughs) so it is not bad compared to the snow and cold and all that good stuff at home. So um, I guess to get started on this podcast, um, we like to go back to the beginning of how you even got involved with horses. So what was what was the start of your horse career like? Were you pretty young when you got involved, or, or how was the, the first interaction? Well, so I'm the only one in my family that rides at all. Um, and so when I was a kid, I always wanted to ride. I had, I had friends in school that had horses, and I thought that was just the coolest thing. So I... Uh, I was probably in middle school, maybe seventh or eighth grade, and I had gone to Colorado with my grandparents and decided while I was there that I wanted to ride horses, and so I had this whole plan to convince my parents when I got home that they should let me take horseback riding lessons, and came home and made my pitch, and uh, it worked for some reason, and I started taking horseback riding lessons then at a little place in our hometown and it was just kind of a you know a local they went to little quarter horse shows kind of whatever but I did western stuff in the very beginning and then uh, so I did that for about a year and then that place was actually shutting down and I was the horse that was there that I was taking lessons on the gal was amazing and she didn't want to see me just not be able to ride horses anymore so she approached me and brought me out to her personal barn 
and let me ride her horse and take lessons with her trainer. Um, and it happened to be dressage. So <laughs> I, uh, I took a turn into dressage and I did that for uh, three or four years and took lessons, did that competitively. You know, my parents paid for some of it. I got a job at a vet clinic when I was in like eighth grade. I don't know if that was legal or not, but we knew the vet, so he let me work there. Um, started working to help pay for it. Uh, took dressage lessons, and that gave me a really great foundation that I'm still very thankful for because it really teaches you how to control a horse's body and how to work with a horse. And that set me up to make the transition into reining later easier. So I did that. I got bored of the English saddles and I jumped to the opposite end of the spectrum and did saddle bronc for like a year and a half. And I was horrible at it. I basically just got bucked off all the time. So I was like, I need to find a middle ground here. And when I was in college, I got, uh, I took a job at a deed ranch in the summer and got connected with a guy in Colorado that started Colts for a living. And I, I would drive over there on my day off. Um, and learn to start colts and work with two-year-olds and all of that and then he offered me kind of an internship which basically meant stay here and work for me for free um for a semester which i do now so i get it but um i stayed up in colorado and did that i went back to school where i was at at texas a&m um got into the horse judging team at Texas A&M and kept starting colts for people on the side while I was there. And that was really my first introduction to reining was the horse judging team. Through that, I met a guy from Austria that owns a place over there and has a bunch of, bunch of horses. And he did everything. He had reiners, cutters, cow horses, trail, everything. He offered me a job to come over there. So I took a year off of school um, Went over to Austria. I had no idea what I was doing. And he sent me up to North Texas to ride with Greg Hall, who's a now he's an NRHA judge, but he was training reining horses at the time and gave me kind of a crash course for like two weeks. And then I went to Austria and was training reining horses and teaching lessons. And it taught me how to just make things up and be really confident saying it. So that was. I remember having a lesson with a girl that was asking me about lead changes, and I was, was like, well, let's try this. Oh, that worked. Okay. Yeah, let's go with that then. So that was essentially my experience when I was in Austria. But, but it was great because it gave me an introduction to the performance side of the industry. And up until that point, I had been planning on going to vet school. I had actually applied before I left for Austria, and I had an interview scheduled, and then I canceled it and took a job to Austria. So I came back and decided that I wanted to be a horse trainer. And at that point in time, Nathan Piper was training in Madisonville, Texas, which was near College Station where I was going to school. And we were introduced through a mutual friend. And I would go over there when I had time and just ride with him. And he was a big help. And then when I graduated, um, my wife Amy and I got married. And then uh, Nathan set me up with a job in North Texas. So we moved to North Texas and I worked for Patrice St. Ange for about a year and a half. And then I went, went to work for Jordan Larson after that for about four years. And Jordan was great to work for. He taught me a ton. Um, and then I started my own business in 2015. And then we've been doing that ever since.
I I knew about the dressage background because we had talked about it previously, but I had no idea about everything else. That's yeah. quite the journey to get here. Yeah, yeah. We took I took lots of twists and turns until I kind of settled on the reining. I went to it was like a pendulum swing. Ended up in the middle. Yeah, the the saddle bronc is is definitely the complete opposite of the dressage. Um, yeah. So, you know, I decided uh, but, I wanted to be a cowboy, and then I decided I didn't want to be that cowboy, so I came back to the middle. I'm sure your body thanks you a little bit for that. Um, yeah. But I I want to go back to the dressage thing just because like Michaela and I bring this up so often on the podcast because like her and I both come from. Uh, you know, Michaela, Michaela Barrel races now, but her and I both started in the all-around stuff. So you kind of learn that traditional horsemanship, how to sit, how to be quiet in your hands and your legs. And, and obviously the same for the dressage. And I think that's so huge because it just makes such a difference in the overall performance of somebody when they're riding a rainer. You can just, you know, like yeah. the people who you know have that classical horsemanship background it's just so you can just tell when they're riding and showing and you know it just, they just make it look so effortless yeah i you know for me there's challenges to it because in dressage and like my wife has a hunter jumper background so when i was teaching her to ride rainers everything that she wanted to do was like lean forward and grip with her legs i'm like okay we need to do the opposite of all of that and dressage is different but similar in a way because it I had to overcome some of the body position pieces, but I feel like that's fairly easy to overcome. I feel like what is difficult to teach a person is feel and how to feel what a horse is doing and how to manipulate that feel with your body. And that is what I feel that dressage taught me is how to feel what the horse is doing, how, how I can manipulate that, how they respond to my body. So I've been able to apply a lot of the concepts to, um, you know, to, to maneuvers that I'm teaching a horse. And so I think that, that gave me, that made up in some ways for the late start that I got in reining. Cause a lot of the guys that I know, I mean, they've been doing this since they were kids, um, didn't go to college. A lot of them, you know, they just, they started training and working for trainers earlier. So I, when I came into this at 22, 21, 22, I felt pretty behind because they were like 15 year olds kicking my butt. Um, so that, I feel like that ex accelerated the learning process a little bit for me of understanding that. And so I, you know, looking back now, I'm thankful for that. And I'm, I'm also thankful that I went to college because I feel like that's given me a leg up in other ways over guys that didn't. Because um, my wife and I both work full time. I've got my business. My wife's a real estate agent. And it's kind of funny because I think a lot of people in this industry are used to a guy's wife like running the business and them just riding horses. So they'll come out to the barn and hand my wife a check and she's like, okay, I, I don't, I'll give this a ride. <laughs> I don't know. So I think going through college gave me a, a leg up in a sense and, and like, and, and I didn't even do a business degree, but just some concepts of how to run a business efficiently and uh, things like that that would be a challenge if I didn't have that experience I had one of the girls that works for me she's in college right now in her freshman year and uh, I felt like it was a loaded question but her dad through her asked me if I thought college was important because she was wanting to drop out and just train 
I was like, well, that feels loaded, but, um, but I told her, I, I think there's a lot that you can gain from going to college, even if you want to be a horse trainer that you know, might take you a lot longer to figure out or to struggle through as a business. So, so I feel like those two things, even though they weren't di- directly related necessarily to being a reigning trainer, have benefited me in the long run, even though it made a little bit of a different start than a lot of guys get. I think the education thing is huge, and we've talked about it with Bud Lyon, too, who is yeah. obviously a good friend of yours, and it, it does. It, the horse training aspect, like, well, you know, you say horse trainer, somebody thinks that you're on a horse all the time. It's really, you know, that's just one little piece of that business. There's so much else that goes into it that, you know, that education just helps prepare you just a little bit more for going out on your own. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I with the college and everything, you know, you went to college, you did all of this and you had all of the different experiences, but what exactly was it that drew you to the reigning and wanting to become a reigning professional? Uh, well, so originally I kind of thought I wanted to be a cow horse or cutting trainer, but then I reminded myself again that I wasn't a cowboy. So I was, uh, I, something about the reining, there's just so much precision to it, and I'm very much a perfectionist, and so I love the the detail and the precision, and you know, a lot of the maneuvers that we do in reining at the surface level seem like they might be fairly straightforward, like, okay, you're going to run and stop, you just run down the pan and pull or say well and they stop, but there's so much detail that goes into um taking a maneuver from what's a zero stop to a plus half and then it's like an exponential growth or exponential rate of return you could say so then going from a half to a one obviously you have to have the talent and the horse but there's a lot of work and a lot of detail that goes into taking that maneuver to the next level so just training the maneuvers and working with another animal where you can't you can't just force what you want to do on them um, you know, you have to make it to where it's where they want to do it because otherwise it's going to come to bite you in the butt later. But if a horse is well-trained and they, um, you know, they want to do what you're asking them to do, like that's when they go and really perform in horse show. And so there's, there's that connection that I think is a huge challenge because it's not like just training your own body to go do something. You're having to communicate with another creature that doesn't speak the same language as you to do these difficult concepts and then, you know, go perform. And I'm, so I think the detail of it, um, and the, the precision, and then I'm just, I'm really competitive by nature. So I, I love horse showing and it's not even so much. I, I don't, I went through a brief period where like when I was working for Jordan, I was, I had had some success and won, and then all I wanted to do was win. And then I was terrible for like a year and (laughs) Jordan actually sat me down. He's like, you need to chill and just focus on doing every step of the way, like every step of the way, every maneuver you're doing, every little piece, doing it the best you can and that success will come. And that's been advice that I really stuck to since then. And it kind of comes and goes, but, um, but there's a mental side to competition beyond just preparing the horse over the years that we do to when you are getting to the horse show of you know, what you're doing 
you know, what your, your mental side of that preparation, preparing the horse mentally and physically. And then when you walk into pen and, you know, you know that you're being judged and um, how you operate under that pressure, I just, I, I love it. So it's super fun for me on all of that side of it. So along with that, you know, you said you had some success and I know that sometimes it takes some success to kind of put you on the map, you know, for a lack of better way of saying it in the horse training world. So is there a particular horse that you had throughout this process that you're like, oh my gosh, this one really made my career so far? I mean, you're not that far into your career. You're still pretty young. So (laughs) yeah, it's kind of gone in waves for me a little bit. Like I, when I worked for Jordan, you know, I had really great horses to show um, because whatever wasn't enough for him in the level four, I would get, and he started me out slow, but then he was giving me really great opportunities. So I got to show, you know, one horse was stepping on Sparks, who Andrea had showed, Jordan had showed, Marco had showed. So I got the opportunity to show him, which was a ton of fun. Um, And, you know, I still remember, like, I didn't know any of those guys that well at the time. Um, But I still remember, like, Andrea watching me show him and uh, talking to me about it and I was thinking okay that was pretty cool (laughs) so I I got the opportunity to show some really nice horses when I worked for Jordan's I don't know that there was one that was like a a game changer so to speak but what it did do was it gave me a lot of confidence that you know I thought I was like ready to go Um, and I won enough to where I put myself just in the level four so Jordan and I had a conversation. He was like, look, you're not going to have a lot of horses to show here because you're just level four. He's just level four. So it was kind of the time to start my business. Hindsight, I wish I would have gone from there and gone to work for somebody else that I could have learned more because I, I feel like I knew a decent amount about how to show, but I really didn't understand fully, and not that I do now, but especially compared to then, how to really train a horse. So there was a lot that was missing in my training program. But when I left there, I thought everything was just going to kind of click and happen. Um, and it was several years of not being as successful as I wanted to. My horse is not riding like I wanted to, getting very frustrated. And, yeah, I think you hit a point where you can either blame everything else or step back and say, okay, what am I doing wrong and how do I fix it? And and so that was kind of a turning point for me. And then I started, my buddy Adam Hendrickson lives up in Colorado by me. So I started going riding with Adam. Um, and we've been friends for a long time, but just getting help. And it's one of those things where it's uncomfortable because at first it, you know, your confidence goes from here to down here because you realize there's a lot that you don't know, but you kind of have to rip that Band-Aid off if you're going to get any better. And so I, I started riding with him Um quite a bit and making changes to my training program uh making changes to my training program you know doing things differently from the ground up i would say and then i started experiencing a little bit more success and my horses were showing better because they were you know being trained better and um you know that that started making some changes and then you know, I had a horse that uh, my wife actually found her in the futurity sale, in the marketplace sale. Um, 
she was Magnum Chick Dream out of Miss Silvergun, who's a really fantastic mare. And you know, she was in that sale. I think a lot of people thought there was something wrong with her, but um, she just ended up in that sale and my wife saw her. And so we ended up buying her out of the sale. She was uh, going into her three, you know, she was two coming three. Um, and so I wrote her that year. Wasn't really planning on showing her as a three-year-old even, but she really stepped it up and um, went and showed her as a three-year-old. And she was actually my, she was my first level four open futurity finalist. And at the time I still didn't have, I feel like my confidence was still not as high as it was originally from showing. And I had never made, you know, I had made the level four finals at the Derby once, but I had never made it at the Futurity. And it just seemed like this unattainable thing. Um, and I was actually thinking about letting somebody else show her at the Futurity because I was, um, you know, I was thinking, well, I don't, I don't know. She's a really nice horse. I don't know if I can get her to the level four finals. And my wife, God bless her, was like, no, we own this horse. You are showing her. <laughs> so I showed her at Futurity, and that was the first time I made the level four finals. And it really um, changed my perspective a little bit. Of like, okay, if I keep doing the hard work and keep learning and keep improving, like I can do this. So it gave me a lot of confidence, and I feel like she shifted my career a lot more to where I'm at and honestly I feel like I'm like just on the early stages of where I want to be um, but that whole process has taught me that like okay you're not going to force it you know one you've got to have good horses but two you've got to just keep learning and keep improving keep getting better uh, not thinking you've got everything figured out so it's just changed my mindset on on this whole deal a lot and rather than being you know, overly confident or arrogant, I feel like it's made me more humble that, okay, I, there is still so much that I don't know. And it makes me enjoy the process more as well. Cause you know, then it's like, okay, I don't, I don't have to know everything right now, but I really enjoy this process and making my horses better. So I'm just going to keep learning and keep figuring things out. So I try to ride with more guys and learn and um, have that mindset with my training more than you know, I know what to do. I just need to go show everybody what I know or whatever. And it's made me show a lot better too. So you've talked a lot about your open uh, level success and, and challenges and all that, but you also have, I mean, you have a ton of non-pros too, and that's a whole different mindset when it comes to getting a horse ready for the open versus getting a horse and a non-pro ready for the non-pro, you know, did yeah. you have to, I mean, were there anybody like when you worked for Jordan or, you know, uh, you know, any of them, did that kind of help you get ready for something like that? Or how did you prepare yourself to be able to work with, you know, non-pros? Because you do essentially have to speak coming as a non-pro. You have to speak a different language for us non-pros. Yeah, I would say that one thing I've really learned coaching non-pros is that they I, I have to work with them in a way that gets them confident. Um, and I think it's the same way when I'm teaching like my assistant and what she's doing. If she loses confidence, then she's not going to ride as well. And if my non-pros lose confidence, they're not going to ride as well. They're not going to show as well. So that's one of the biggest things I've learned is I think they need to spend as much time on their horses as they can without you know, diminishing what that horse is doing. 
So finding that balance of how much Sanan throws riding versus how much I'm riding that horse is pretty key. And then having them ride the horse enough to where, you know, it's like if you, you know, no matter how long we've driven, you go to the airport and get a rental car that's different than the one that you drive. And I always drive out of the airport parking lot feeling like I'm going to run into something because it just feels different. But after a day, you're like, okay, I got this. And, it, you know, it feels normal. You're driving around like Andretti or whatever. But um, but that initial introduction is like if you don't spend enough time with that vehicle, whatever it may be, it feels foreign. And I think with people on horses, it's the same way. And even for me, like I ride horses all day and all kinds of different horses. I get on a new one and it's going to feel different. So being able to be confident enough to just go put your hand down and show, if you don't know that horse, it's going to be tough. So part of that, I feel, with a non-pro being confident is just them spending time on their horse. And I have my non-pros practice patterns a lot in ways that, you know, they're practicing at home but correcting things. So, excuse me, so that they not only feel confident with the horse but how to correct things and how to handle things. So that if something comes up in the show pen, they know what to do and they don't, you know, they don't feel like they're out of control. Um, so that that has helped a lot, I think, with coaching. And then I just have to remind myself sometimes that like this is their this is their hobby. This should be a fun experience. Like first and foremost, this should be fun. And I'm so competitive that at times I feel myself like putting too much pressure on people. And then that pressure doesn't like they put too much pressure on themselves and it doesn't go well. So if I keep everything kind of chill, I think it tends to tends to go a little bit better. I really love that you compared it to a rental car because that is something that I never even had thought about because I do every time I go get a rental car or drive somebody else's car, it is like the scariest thing. So then, yeah, yeah. hopping on a different horse is like kind of that same feeling where you're trying to figure out where all the buttons are and like right. how to turn down the music so you can see and yeah. <laughs> do that sort of stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I totally love that you compared it to that but then also the fact that yeah it's a hobby and even as myself like so I know that they're probably thinking that too that I have to remember that this is a hobby like I don't make my money being in the show pen like I have a job that I work nine to five that supports my horse show habit so mm -hmm. having a coach that understands that and isn't like oh my gosh you have to go and win when it's something I mean of course we all want to win that's like what we all want but having a coach that understands, like, I put my money into this, and I want to win, but if I don't, it's a hobby, and yeah. keeping the pressure off makes it a little bit easier to go out there and show with a clear mind. Right, right. And I I don't know, this always bothered, and Jordan was never this way, but I would see other trainers that, like, they would come up to you and uh, talk, about, talk about their non-pros like they were idiots, because they couldn't get some concept that we spend 12 hours a day trying to learn and that always bothered me too because I you know the people that are doing this for the most part they've been successful in some other industry it's businessmen and women it's people that have done something in another industry and obviously are smart enough to be successful in that and have the money to spend on a hobby like reining horses that's you know not cheap and Say it bothered me when there was kind of an attitude of disrespect towards non-pros through that. And not everybody is like that, but I did see it a fair amount. 
And so I feel like that has tried to shape my approach as well that, yeah, okay, yeah, so they don't do this every day. They don't understand it to the degree that I do, but they're not idiots. Like they're smart people um, and they need to, to, they need to be treated with respect. And I feel like that, you know, that's something that I think we need to do with our horses, non-pros, customers, whoever it is, it needs to be an attitude of respect first. Um, and then that, that competitive nature comes second. I, I've actually, I've heard those conversations too. I spent a lot of time before this job. I was working, you know, I was trying to get into it professionally and then realized that 401k and paid time off and benefits <laughs> are really nice. Um, yep. So I yep. went the other direction. Um, but yeah, you, you do hear that a lot and I still hear it, you know, as I'm just kind of sitting in the background of things and it, it is really disheartening because you're right. Those people ha are successful in other industries and, you know, they're, yes, they're not riding 12 hours a day, but they, you know, they're smart people. They're, they're there, they're doing it. And also I think we, we kind of forget as an industry in whole and not just NRHA or AQHA or whatever. I think everybody, um, the non-pros are why we get to do the things we get to do. You know, Absolutely. horse trainers wouldn't have a job if they didn't have non-pros that were giving, yeah. like, had horses in training that needed help. You know, if if everybody was so good they could ride their horses on their own, nobody would have horses in training. Right. right. Yeah, and I have non-pros that joke about that every once in a while, and they'll be doing something, and they'll look at me, and they'll go, I'm screwing this up, aren't I? And it's like, no, it's fine. They say, well, it's job security. You'll be okay. <laughs> That's fine. Um, another thing that I really love about your approach to horse training outside of the, you, you kind of mentioned this with the horses, similar, you know, it still has to, you have to have that fun atmosphere. You have to make it enjoyable or else they're going to get burned out, people and horses. I remember right before you went to the fraternity last year, you posted on your Instagram or something that you were loping your three-year-old who we had used <laughs> in the videos. Uh, yeah. Man, you were loping her in the pasture, just like letting her enjoy herself, like right before the fraternity. And that, yeah. I mean, basically that stuck with me because here I am bringing it up six months later, like an Instagram post that you did. Um, <laughs> but I love that because I think that's so huge. And I, you know, I'm a big believer in that too. I take this cow horse that I'm showing, you know, he's won about $50,000, but I still make him go swimming in the reservoir and I still make him go into the <laughs> desert riding. And, you know, it's important that they're horses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know. And it's just little things like we we've got windows on just about all of our stalls at the barn because it's like, like you said, they're horses. They need time outside. They need fresh air. They need to go ride and just, you know, have have no pressure. Go enjoy, be sassy, whatever. Um, and I think it's important for us to remember, too, why we all got into this. Like I got into this because I just loved horses. And that took me down the long path of being a horse trainer. And it's easy to remember to forget sometimes. And, you know, I think it's, it would be easy to think of them as just a, like a tool or a means to some end that we're pursuing. But, um, you know, there was, we, I had a horse that she actually, she just passed away like a month or so ago, but she was the first two-year-old that I started I got her when I was actually that summer when I was working for the Colt starter uh, some people that I'd worked for in Texas gave her to me 
And I took her, I mean, I tried, I tried to make her into a reigning horse. I tried to do all kinds of stuff with her, but she was like foundation bred, gigantic Hancock thing. Um, but just a horse, just a great horse. Like I took her on a pack trip on the Continental Divide, did all kinds of stuff. And she just smelled like a horse. And I don't know what is different about it, but the horses that are in stalls that are eating alfalfa and everything else, they smell different. She was out with them in the pasture. But you could go just smell her neck and be reminded of like, I remember when I was, you know, 10 years old and all I wanted to do was ride horses. And so I think it's important for us to remember that. But yeah, that particular horse, she's, I, everybody gives me grief in the barn because I spoil her rotten because I love her. But uh, she's, she's a four-year-old. I showed her last year as a three-year-old and she's just a fantastic horse. I love her. But at that particular time, I was, you know, I was leading up to the futurity. So the pressure's building. It's like you're trying to make everything just perfect. But some horses, you can feel that, like, they're putting so much pressure on themselves that something's going to go wrong. And, you know, I was riding her, and I could just feel like she's just overdoing things and trying too hard and overthinking things. It's like, ah, let's go rope in a hayfield. <laughs> And it's funny how it changes them because she went and loped and had fun and ate grass and the next day she felt great. So it's, I think there's a lot to that mental and emotional side of horses when it comes to horse training and people, you know, same deal that uh, sometimes they just need to go right outside. Well, I feel like, you know, when you say that she was putting too much pressure on herself, a lot of people don't you know think about that like the horses they want to do well they want to do well for us yeah. and they want to do their job really well so you know sometimes we just forget that they do think like that and they want to be yeah. successful like we do so they're like overworking and overdoing things so when we listen to them and we're like okay let's go lope in a hayfield I think that that you know makes them laugh and it makes them enjoy their job right yep I agree so you're currently at the NRBC. Um, by the time this podcast comes out, that'll be done with. But what horses are you? Do you have with you? How many did you bring? Uh, we just brought five down. I've got I've got one to show. One of the four year olds that I showed last year is a three year old. And then my wife is showing a horse. And then I've got a customer showing two in the non pro derby. And then one one youth kid showing. So it's kind of five is kind of nice it's a lighter horse show for us but it's a, yeah, yeah that, it's a that sounds show. like a vacation <laughs> yeah yeah it's pretty nice and the horse I'm showing I I know him pretty well at this point so it's he's not terribly difficult to get ready but uh but it yeah it's it's gonna be interesting because it's I think this is probably the toughest horse show in the country and so it's it's difficult with a four-year-old but yeah, it's, I mean, it's just, it's great horse show, but it's a tough horse show. It's a big pen, lots of great horses. They've got four, five, six, and seven-year-olds of the best horses in the country showing. So it'll, it'll be a challenge, but it's going to be fun. That is the one big reigning event that I have not been to, and I want to go so bad because everybody says that it is the most fun out of all the horse shows because it's just, yeah, it's it's the toughest show out of the year, yeah. and especially now that they are letting the seven-year-olds compete. I mean, it mm -hmm. just you know it changes the game when you're when you're showing a four-year-old against those seven-year-olds. Yeah, absolutely. 
and I've never made the level four finals here. I've made the level three, but you know, it's so that's my goal. So when this comes out, we'll see how it goes. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I, I think it, I don't know, the futurity in this one are different because the futurity, you know, it's more, it takes a really good horse, but it takes a really consistent horse to go two goes, have a high composite, make the level four finals. It's just, it's a different kind of consistency, I would say. So this one to me takes like the best run to make the level four finals, uh, which is a great, you know, it's a great challenge. It's a great thing to aspire to. So that's my that's my goal here, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, the consistency in the three-year-old thing, that's, uh, you know, to go that many rounds with a three-year-old and be consistent during all those rounds, that's that takes a pretty special horse. So I can yeah. – definitely a different kind of, of uh, competition. But anyway, good luck. Um, if our much. listeners want to learn more about you, where can they find you on social media and your website and – Obviously, Horse and Rider On Demand, there's going to be lots of video content coming out, so. I think on, probably going to get this wrong, but on Facebook, it's Ryan Rushing Performance Horses. Instagram, it's just R Rushing PH. Um, and our website, I think, is rrushingph.com. <laughs> so, pretty sure that's it. Perfect. If it's not, we'll add a correction at the beginning. So if yeah, there was a correction at the beginning, you guys know why. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again for taking time out of your day while you are at one of the busiest horse shows of the year. We really yeah. appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Farnham, for bringing you this episode of The Ride. Thank you guys for tuning into The Ride Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Horse and Rider Magazine on social media and find us at horseandrider.com. If you guys have any questions or comments, please be sure to hit us up at horseandrider at aimmedia.com. We want to hear from you guys. And if you like what you're listening to, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. How many stars, Michaela? Five stars, please.